If you have your Bibles, please turn in to Romans chapter 2. To Romans chapter 2. This is not the passage I'll be expounding this morning, but it's where we'll begin. Uh, I have to give a brief word of apology. Uh, I am not feeling especially well this morning. I say that for a few reasons. Uh, First, just to invite your prayers uh, for me as I preach, that I would preach as the Lord would have me. Uh, Also, uh, I say that because it's my practice normally to stay by the back door after the service to greet folks. Uh, I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, So if you're visiting this morning, you'll just have to come back next week uh, so I can greet you. I also say that because I am genuinely uh, thrilled about what I am to preach this morning, but I fear that enthusiasm won't come through because I'm feeling a little low this morning. So you'll have to walk by faith and not by sight uh, as I preach. It's been my habit since we've been together as a church to begin every new year by preaching two or three topical sermons before re-engaging in the series of sermons that I was in prior to our break for Advent. This year is no different. I'd like to preach a topical message this morning uh, and next Sunday as well at the beginning of a new new year uh, before re-engaging in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. When we re-engage in that series, God willing, we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount uh, a little bit later on in January. This morning I'd like to preach on a subject that is well-suited to the opening of a new year. It's a subject that is well-suited to our cultural moment. Uh, It's a subject that I think is well-suited to the cadence of our life here at Emmanuel Church and where we are in our history as a church. And it is indeed a subject that Christians should think about constantly. I'd like to preach to you this morning on the subject of the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Particularly, I'd like to preach to you on seven things Christians can expect at the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead, uh, that is not a reference now to Jesus' resurrection, but rather the resurrection to come, of which Jesus is the first fruits. Uh, The resurrection from the dead is one of the most fundamental of Christian doctrines. Uh, We here at Emmanuel Church often confess together the Apostles' Creed, and we say the line in that creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. A few biblical doctrines receive more attention in the New Testament than the doctrine of the second coming of Christ and the bodily resurrection. Uh, Jesus speaks about His second coming and the resurrection constantly, uh, particularly in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the gospel of Matthew that we've been considering, you could hardly find a page in Matthew's gospel that doesn't in some way look to the second coming and the resurrection from the dead. Furthermore, almost every letter of the New Testament makes some contribution to the subject of the resurrection and the world to come. The resurrection of the body is presented as foundational to the entire Christian worldview. It is an essential component of the gospel message itself. Without a bodily resurrection, the gospel message becomes incoherent. Moreover, and this is something I would like us all to consider at the beginning of a new year, as you read the Scriptures on your own, particularly the New Testament, and that is that the resurrection from the dead is presented as the single greatest motivator for all of the Christian life. The resurrection from the dead is presented in the Bible, especially the New Testament, as the single greatest motivator for all of the Christian life. I wonder if the resurrection functions in that way in your own Christian life. According to the New Testament, 
Nothing is to provide more motivation for the Christian to hope in Christ, to persevere through trials, to fight his sin, to live for righteousness, to walk in obedience, to evangelize his neighbors, to serve the church and prioritize its gatherings, to pursue fellowship and communion with the Lord than the fact that the resurrection from the dead is coming. And those who belong to Christ will be saved everlastingly so and will inherit everlasting life in paradise forever in the presence of God. The Apostle Paul will go so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that the whole Christian faith is pointless without the resurrection from the dead. Everything we are about and everything we do is a sham if there is no resurrection from the dead. I can remember one time hearing a preacher say that even if there is no resurrection from the dead, well, the Christian life is still the best kind of life you can live. That is exactly false according to the Bible. If there is no resurrection of the body, we are of all people in the world to be most pitied, the Apostle Paul says. Your efforts to live in obedience to Christ, all your efforts at slaying your sin, Christian, all your trials, your suffering and your sorrows, all your prayers, your attention to the Bible, all the sermons you've received, all your relationships in the church, the global works of evangelism and missions, they're all utterly pointless and worse than pointless if there is no resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead when Christ will return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth is the single greatest motivating factor in the Christian life, which means if you Christian don't think often about the resurrection from the dead, your Christian life can be at best anemic. The Bible is clear. We are not supplied sufficiently with other hopes and incentives to motivate and sustain us in our Christian walk outside of the resurrection from the dead. It all crumbles if this life is all there is and if there is no life beyond the grave. <coughs> What motivates a man who is engaged to be married and what keeps him chaste and patient in his state as an engaged person? What motivates him? It's that there's a date on the calendar when he will soon marry his bride. And so he waits with eager longing and expectation and the coming wedding and subsequent marriage motivates him as he waits and it gives meaning and hope to his waiting. What motivates a woman who is pregnant to endure the nine months of pregnancy with morning sickness and back pain and sleepless nights and the toll that pregnancy takes on her body and the pains of the contractions and the hard labor and the pushing and the strain? What motivates her? It's the hope that very soon she will hold a newborn baby in her arms. Similarly, what is it that motivates Christians to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow Jesus? What is it that motivates them to put off sin, to kill their lusts, to live in service to others, to give their time, their money, their energy, their resources to serving Christ in His church? Oh, what motivates them to give up uh, every Sunday morning, as many of you do, uh, to gather, to wake up early when you could be doing any number of other things? To assemble with people with whom you have no natural earthly connection whatsoever. And to use your Sunday every week in this way. 
What motivates people to leave home and plant churches and cross land and ocean to see others believe in the gospel? What motivates them to hold perspectives and beliefs that place them out of step with the culture and invite the world's hostility and opposition? What motivates the martyrs to give up their bodies to be burned? What is it if it's not the resurrection from the dead and the promise of heavenly reward? And yet it's been my sad experience that many Christians don't really think much about the resurrection at all. And there are many possible reasons for this. I'll mention two. Uh, The first, I think, is simply that many Christians are too earthly-minded. We're warned about this in the Bible, not to be earthly-minded, but to be heavenly-minded. Not to be this worldly-minded, but to be spiritually-minded. Sadly, many Christians functionally Live as though this life is all that there is. And this manifests itself in the way they spend their time, uh, their money, the way they look at relationships, the way they view the church, the things that cause them fear and anxiety. And all these various things, they don't appear any different from the world because functionally, they don't think much about the world to come. They're just too caught up in their circumstances, what's going on around them too caught up in this world and this world's concerns, they're not heavenly minded, they're not spiritually minded, and thus their lives are not rightly ordered upon and oriented toward the life to come. Another reason, a second reason I think Christians don't think much about the resurrection is less sinful, but no less unacceptable. And that is that they think it's somehow improper to think upon the promises of the resurrection and the reward of heaven as a motivator to sacrifice obedience and godliness in the present. Somehow it's wrong for me to think about the world to come and the reward that's mine and for that to motivate me toward godliness and holiness and serving the Lord. My friend, if that's you, let me just try to disabuse you of that perspective. There are literally hundreds of texts in the Bible that instruct you to think in exactly that way. Is it hope in pie in the sky religion? This is hope in a heavenly reward and inheritance that Jesus Christ himself offers to all those who serve him faithfully on earth. We're about to consider the Sermon on the Mount together. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. You know what the Beatitudes do? You know what they say? They say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why, Why is it good to be poor in spirit? Because you'll get the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Blessed are the meek. Why is it a good thing to be meek, according to Jesus in his first sermon in Matthew's gospel? Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. And that's not this fallen, broken one. That's the new heavens and the new earth that will be ours at the last day. Why does it pay to be pure? Blessed are the pure in heart. You're fighting with lust. You're fighting with uncleanness and impurity. Why is it a good thing to be pure? Blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. And to see God is better than anything. There's a reward to be had for those who pursue righteousness, for those who pursue meekness, for those who pursue godliness. It is the resurrection from the dead and the life everlasting that is to come. So this morning, I'd like to talk to you about the resurrection from the dead, and I'd like to help us all think more carefully about it. And I'd like to help us think about the perspectives the Bible gives us on the resurrection from the dead, what it will be like and what we as Christians can expect. In particular, I'd like to identify seven things Christians can expect at the resurrection. 
Now, I'm not interested in this sermon in speculations about the world to come. Uh, There is so much that is unknown and mysterious about the resurrection and about heaven, and there is an entire genre of literature given to speculation about what that will all be like. I don't want to focus on what's speculative, but what is sure and clear from God's Word. Uh, Also, I'm not going to say much about what we might call, some theologians call, the intermediate state. I'm not really talking about that this morning. That's the, the state of existence for the believer between our death and the second coming. Uh, I don't understand much about that. It's an obscure topic to me. There are only two things I know to say. I do believe that when we die, our bodies fall asleep in the grave and they decay. And secondly, I know that our spirits go to be with the Lord. And beyond those two simple statements, I don't know what else to say about the intermediate state. It's not what I'm focusing on this morning. We want to talk about what's sure in God's word, what the coming resurrection will be like, and particularly seven things, Christian, you should expect at the resurrection. Number one, you, Christian, can expect to be judged. You, Christian, can expect to be judged at the resurrection. The Bible is unequivocally clear that all flesh will be judged, and that includes the children of God. Uh, All of us, we who are God's people as well, will enter into the judgment along with the wicked. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Christians can expect in the first instance at the resurrection to be judged. We will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we may wonder, what will this judgment be like for the Christian? Well, we should first note it will be a judgment according to works. It will be a judgment according to works. And when I say it will be a judgment according to works, I mean our works. It will be a judgment according to what we did and how we lived. A judgment according to our thoughts, our words, and our conduct. And again, the scriptures cannot be clearer on this point. I already read 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hopefully you're in Romans 2, the passage that I ask you to turn to. Look with me, if you will, at verse 6 of Romans chapter 2. There the apostle Paul writes, that the Lord will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. In Matthew 25, where the Lord himself speaks most explicitly about his second coming, when he comes in his glory to judge the world, and he divides humanity into the sheep and the goats, and he judges them, on what basis are they judged? Well, he he addresses the wicked as those who did not clothe the naked among the Lord's people or feed the hungry or give themselves to good deeds and things like that. It's what they did that leads him to pronounce judgment over them, uh, that they will be banished to outer darkness. And what is it for the sheep uh, that is the grounds for their judgment? It is that they saw the Lord naked and they clothed him. They saw him hungry 
and they fed him. They cared for him. And the Lord, of course, explains, insofar as you did this, one of the least, my brothers, you did it also for me. What I mean to emphasize is there, it is what the saints do that comes into the judgment. Let me read to you the description of the judgment given to us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There are literally dozens of other passages that can be adduced to establish the point that we Christians, along with the wicked, will be judged according to our works at the resurrection. Now, some of you may be thinking, how could this be? How could those who are justified by faith alone be judged according to their works? Ah, you say, I know, I know. Um, We are judged according to the imputed righteousness of Christ. Christ has lived the perfect life that we could never live. And so when the Bible speaks of we Christians being judged according to our works, it means we're judged according to Christ's works, according to his imputed righteousness. Okay, that perspective is totally insupportable by the Bible. Uh, There is not a solitary text that would support that perspective, that what these passages mean when they say we too will be judged according to what we have done, that we're supposed to do this kind of clumsy, you know, hermeneutic where we just kind of read the imputed righteousness of Christ into that. There's no support for that perspective. No, friends, make no mistake, we Christians will be judged according to our works. The Bible teaches that you, Christian, if you're to pass muster at the judgment, you must have works. You need deeds. You will not get into heaven without them. Just settle this in your mind. Hebrews 12, 14, there is a holiness without which no man will see the Lord. You will not get into heaven without obedience, without good works, without holiness. Now, I'm saying this in the full knowledge of and full belief in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And what I'm saying doesn't in the least bit contradict or jeopardize the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And here's the reason why. Because the Bible teaches, and for those here who are theologically anxious this morning, the Reformed tradition teaches that all those who are justified, that is in a moment declared righteous by the unilateral work of God in making a sinner right, through free and full pardon, through the obedience of Christ. All those who are justified are regenerated and are given the gift of faith. And my friend, what do regenerate people with faith do? Think back to our series on Abraham from last year, that man of faith. What do regenerate people with faith do? They work. A hundred times out of a hundred. Faith, James says, without works 
is dead. That is to say, it's not real faith if it lacks works, which is to say, the person who has faith without works doesn't have faith at all and therefore is not justified. Faith is by nature a restless, wriggling, and active thing. Faith by nature, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, works through love. You can think of it mathematically if you'd like. A sovereignly elected person equals a person who is born again and given the gift of faith, equals a person who is justified freely on the merits of Christ's blood alone, equals a person who lives a life of good works and who walks in holiness, equals a person who is glorified at the last day according to those works that proceed from faith. You see, our works vindicate who we are. They show whether or not we have faith. Our works are the proof of our faith and therefore the proof of our justification. Now, this doesn't mean you never sin. It doesn't even mean your good works outweigh all your bad deeds, that you've done more good than wrong. But it means that when the books are open at the last day and your life is taken into account as a Christian, the Lord will see evidences of the fruit of faith. What will vindicate the veracity and the genuineness of faith is that there was fruit and works that proceeded. And so you are justified freely and only and totally on what Christ has done. But as he has given you the gift of faith, invariably, indubitably, always, some measure of works and good deeds will proceed from that faith. Friends, this is true even of the thief on the cross. No way did his good outweigh his bad. But I guarantee you in those final moments of his life, there was evidence of living, active faith. At the very least, we see him evangelizing his neighbor and praising the Lord, putting his trust in Jesus Christ in his final moments. There are signs of those good deeds, and upon those good deeds we will be judged. So we are to be judged according to our works, but what does that mean for us? What will that be like in our experience? Well, friends, Judgment Day will be both a difficult day for the Christian and a triumphant day. It will be a difficult day for us. But the books will be open. Everything that has been whispered in dark corners will be proclaimed on the rooftops. Jesus says in Matthew 12, I think it's verse 37, that every idle word will enter the judgment. Uh, we're not somehow spared that. Uh, everything I've ever said or done will be known and revealed at the last day. And that's going to be very, I know for me that will be very difficult. Uh, there will be things you learned about me and my own thoughts and my conduct that I'll be embarrassed by. They'll be a source of shame to me. I think it'll be that way for all of us. And it's not wrong, Christian, for that to function as a motivator in the present to live a godly life. There are certain things I don't want to be read out on that day. I know I'll ultimately be saved, but I, I don't want to have to answer for this before my Lord. That's a proper motivation. Peter uses that motivation in the epistle of 1 Peter. It will be a difficult day for believers as all of our deeds are exposed. But it will also be, Christian, a triumphant day. It will be a triumphant day for those who are in Christ. As our faith is vindicated and our justification is confirmed, it will be shown for all to see 
including the angels and the demons, that we are indeed the children of God, and that we have lived our lives in faith, and that none of our obedience went unnoticed. Uh, Christian, uh, nothing you have done in service to Christ goes unnoticed. Every good deed, every act of faith, every work of righteousness, all your efforts at fighting sin, all your efforts to serve the Lord and honor Him with your life, none of that's gone unnoticed, and everyone will see it that last day. Your good works will be read out as a vindication of your union with Christ and your justification in Him as your faith in the Son of God. It'll be like the scene in Matthew 25 that I mentioned a moment ago. There Jesus will commend His people before the cosmos, before the generations throughout history. He will commend us for serving Him faithfully and walking in obedience. Can you imagine that? Before all the world hearing the well-done, good, and faithful servant, you can expect that at the resurrection. The Lord vindicating your faith and rewarding your obedience. It'll be like Abraham in Genesis 22. Abraham was, Abraham was justified in Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. Uh, brothers, do we want to try to set up a, a handheld? Let's go ahead and try to And if it continues to buzz like that, I'll, I'll cut it off. It'll be like with Abraham. Abraham was justified in a moment in Genesis 15, 6. He never became more secure in Jesus Christ than he was that day. And yet in Genesis 22, when he goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, what do we read? The Lord says, now I know that you trust me, that you believe me. In other words, his faith was vindicated by his deeds. It'll be like that for us on the last day. Our faith will be seen to be real. We will pass through that day such that, as Peter says, the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. We will all experience and have verified and vindicated the tested genuineness of our faith. That will be proved and shown at the last day. And friends, that should excite us. But before I leave this point, which is going to be the longest of the seven, I just want to make plain and clear. Though we will be judged, friends, we will not be condemned. We will not be condemned. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will be judged according to our works. But the verdict over us is that we are right with God. And there is no condemnation that awaits you in that judgment. However difficult and uncomfortable it may be, it will result in our glorification and our ultimate vindication. Thank you, Joseph. Uh, point number two, and we'll move more quickly now. Number one, you can expect to be judged. Now more quickly, point number two. This seems to be working now, so I'll keep using this, and if it buzzes again, I'll rely on that. Does that work? Okay. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, okay? <laughs> number two, Christian, you can expect at the resurrection full and final salvation from sin's penalty and power forever. You can expect full and final salvation from sin's penalty and power forever. The Bible speaks of our salvation in three tenses. Did you know this? The Bible speaks of our salvation in the past tense. We were saved in eternity past before the foundations of the world. Our salvation was secure through sovereign election, and it was secured at the cross 2,000 years ago through definite atonement. 
we're also saved in the present. We are justified now, regenerated now, right with God now, redeemed now. But the Bible also speaks of our salvation in the future tense. We are awaiting our salvation. There's a sense in which we've not been saved yet. Our final salvation has not yet come. That does not mean our salvation is in jeopardy at all. That's not what I'm saying. But it is to say the full consummation, the full and final experience of it, we await. We are awaiting our final salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 speaks of God destining us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.23 says, We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And Romans 13.11 says, Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And that's something. I'm never going to be more saved than I am right now. And yet, there's a sense in which I'm closer to salvation on January 1st, 2023 than it was on January 1st, 2022. Salvation is nearer than it was. Hebrews 9, 27, we read, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He's done that already. Nothing more needs to be done with respect to your sin, Christian. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's a coming salvation. When he comes the second time, the first time he came to deal with my sins. Oh, but the second time he comes, it's to save me. It's to bring me into his heavenly kingdom and to free me entirely from sin's penalty and power. You may be familiar with 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Right now, Christian, for you, there is an inheritance, an imperishable inheritance, an incorruptible inheritance that right now the Lord is protecting for you. He's guarding it for you. And he's waiting for you to give it to you. It will be fully and finally yours at the last day. Christian, we don't yet have full salvation. One day we will obtain the outcome of our faith. We will realize the hope of glory. We will enjoy salvation in its fullness, in all its finality, in all of its blessed freedom. We will be saved. And you can expect this salvation to be your full possession at the resurrection from the dead. Point number three. You can expect to be judged. You can expect full and final salvation from sin's penalty and power forever. You can expect a resurrected body and renewed soul entirely free from sin and corruption. I would love to have that right now. You can expect a resurrected body and renewed soul entirely free from sin and corruption. You understand, right, in the new heavens and the new earth and the world to come, we're not just going to float around on clouds in some sort of ethereal, incorporeal, spiritual iteration of ourselves. The world to come is to be a very physical world, a very material, corporeal existence. Christian, you will have a literal, physical, 
resurrected, perfected body. And you will have a renewed soul. Get this, both free from all sin and corruption. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Hard to think of a passage that has helped me more when I'm discouraged and depressed. 1 Corinthians 15, I was so delighted to see so many members of Emmanuel at the uh, performance of the Messiah at uh, Wake Forest this year. My favorite piece is the one that's sung out by the baritone, kind of the, this, this great, you know, loud, rousing, charging piece. Behold, I tell you a mystery based on this passage. First Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What does this text teach us? It reveals to us that our existence then and there will not be like our existence now and here. We will rise then with a sinless, incorruptible, imperishable, immortal body. And we will know everlasting life and an eternal existence totally free from sin. Now what in the world will that be like? I have no idea. I have no idea. I haven't the slightest clue. Because I've never seen anything with my physical eyes unimpaired by sin. I've always had sin in me, animating me, working within me. But, but then I will be free from sin and all corruption and everything that is perishable. I've never known one uninterrupted minute with thoughts and motives that were completely pure, unpolluted by my fallen nature. I've never known what it was like for an instant to have love for God that was not in some way spoiled by my remaining corruption. None of us knows what it's like to be without sin. But one thing I do know for sure, as long as this passage is true in 1 Corinthians 15, one day I will be without it. I will be given resurrected eyes that will behold Jesus, that are completely free from sin. And I will have resurrected lungs and vocal cords that will sing out his praises far better than I can sing them now. Better than, who's, who's the um, Italian singer? Andrea Bocelli. I'll sing better than him with resurrected lungs. 
and vocal cords. I will have hands that are immaculately clean for the first time ever. And they will reach forth and they will embrace my Savior who will have a resurrected physical body. Friends, that's coming. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and will be changed in a moment. This corruption will put on incorruption and this mortality will put on immortality. Christians can expect a resurrected body and a renewed soul entirely free from sin and corruption. Point number four. Point number four, you can expect an end to all pain, sorrow, and death. An end to all pain, sorrow, and death. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Sufferings now, glory then. That's the pattern. Suffering and then glory. Suffering ended then and glory begun. Friends, we live in the era now of pain, sorrow, and death, but all pain has an expiration date. All sorrow has an expiration date. Even death will expire. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, we read, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Listen to this beautiful description of what's coming for us, friends, in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There will be no more cancer, no more car crashes, no more heart attacks, no more rheumatism, no more fibromyalgia, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more abuse or oppression, no more abandonment and betrayal, no more slander or lying, no more persecution, no more strain or stress over difficult circumstances, no more heartache over lost loved ones, no more miscarriages, no more burying our children or our parents, no more fear of the future, no more crying. You understand that we're actually going to forget certain words that we used here on earth because we won't have use for them. Like, no one's going to say, ouch, in heaven. Well, I'm not trying to be cute. You know, you know I'll see you in the world to come, and I'll say, do you remember stubbing your toe, how much that hurt? And you'll say, vaguely, it'll be a thing of the past. All crying and sorrow and pain and death will be no more. There will be no hospitals in heaven. There will be no such thing as an insurance industry. 
There will be no pharmaceutical companies. There will be no need for litigation. No counselors or therapists will be needed. Basically, all of you are going to be out of a job. There will be no need for practically everything that we do because there will be no sin, no pain, no death. The lame will walk in glory land. The blind up there will see. The deaf in glory land will hear. The mute will talk to me. The doctor will not have to call the undertaker, no. There'll be no pain up there to bear. Just walk the streets of gold. That is not just a quaint song or like pie-in-the-sky religion. That's our hope. There's coming a day when sin and sorrow and death will be no more, and there's nothing wrong with celebrating that and looking forward to that. Point number five. I'll review the outline with you for the note-takers among us. I know it's more points than normal for my messages. You can expect to be judged. You can expect full and final salvation from sin's penalty and power forever. You can expect a resurrected body and a renewed soul entirely free from sin and corruption. You can expect an end to all pain, sorrow, and death. Number five, you can expect the triumph of cosmic justice, the suppression of all wickedness and evil, and the vindication of the righteous. You can expect the triumph of cosmic justice, the suppression of all wickedness and evil, and the vindication of the righteous. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There is nothing wrong to have an instinct in your heart for justice. It's a godly instinct. Our God is a God of justice. And one day, all the scales will be evened. He will right every wrong. There is not a wrong that has ever been committed that he won't right in one of two places, either at the cross of Calvary for those who are united to Christ or in eternal hell forever. Justice wins. Righteousness prevails. I will say this is an aspect of the Christian hope that I think shines in a distinct way in our culture today. Our culture talks a lot about justice. No one other than the Christian can guarantee it. Do you understand that? Like the social justice warriors, what's the, what's the hope? You can't right any past wrongs. They're all dead. You can't right that. And what, what's, what's, what's your best plan? Well, if we could just get better laws, that'll really fix things. Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to have better laws. And I'm not saying there isn't a place to try to see justice prevail in our world today. We ought to advocate for justice in our world today. We have, I think, the moral high ground in advocating for justice. But what I mean to say is the Christian worldview and the resurrection from the dead ensures cosmic justice. Uh, for all babies who have been aborted, for all victims of sexual abuse, for victims of every kind of crime, people have been used and abused and oppressed, all the wrongs will be righted at the last day. Second Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What a description. There righteousness will dwell. That can't be said anywhere in our world today. But there righteousness will dwell. Isaiah 42, 3 and 4, 
It's said of the Lord Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The sixth thing you can expect at the resurrection. The sixth thing you can expect, Christian, at the resurrection. You can expect reunion and fellowship forever with all those who have died in faith. You can expect reunion and fellowship forever with all those who have died in faith. Now, let me say this. You read the major passages on the resurrection in the Bible, and you'll soon appreciate that this point is not really emphasized. It doesn't come up very much, but it is occasionally present. The, the point that we will be reunited with all the loved ones who died in faith, not emphasized, but occasionally present. I say that to say, what should excite you, Christian, most about heaven and the resurrection, according to the Bible, is not, in the first instance at least, that all our Christian friends and family will be there. Uh, the Bible doesn't emphasize that. And so I say, if what most excites you about heaven is that you will see your parents again, you need to enlarge your view of the glories of heaven. The Bible just doesn't suggest that what makes heaven most glorious and most wonderful is that all our Christian family and friends will be there. That said, all of our Christian family and friends are going to be there. <laughs> the Bible does at least state this, and it will be wonderful. And there's nothing wrong, nothing at all wrong, about looking forward to reunion and fellowship with Christian friends and family. And to seeing a beloved spouse who died in the Lord, or a parent or child who died in faith, or seeing beloved fellow church members, pastors who helped us in this life, old friends with whom we shared Christian fellowship while we were here together. And I'll tell you, I certainly hope there's nothing wrong with making new friends, because I hope to go on a walk with Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I hope to get in plenty of time with Eve, and Abraham, and Moses, and David, and Mary. Peter and Paul. We will be with all the elect throughout the ages together as one happy family forever. Imagine that. Seventhly, and finally, I don't know when I've last said that. Seventhly, <laughs> and this is everything. I mean, everything pales in comparison to this. You can expect Christian to enjoy eternal life in perfect paradise in the presence of the Lord forever. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 
Are there better words in the Bible than that? We will always be with the Lord. How I want to be with the Lord. I want to ask you to turn to one more passage, and then I'll close. Revelation 7, verse 9. The people of God struggle with so many things. Remaining sin, suffering, and trial, fear, discouragement, depression, all kinds of things. Can I encourage you in your Christian walk to keep this passage and the perspectives of this passage before you more regularly? I say what I said at the beginning. The resurrection from the dead is supposed to be the primary motivator of all of the Christian life. And so if we're going to live as we ought and experience the full hope of faith, we need to think often on passages like this. Revelation 7, verse 9, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm, tree, palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and glory and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And one of the elders addressing me, addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In case you missed this, that's you, Christian. That's you. What's true about these people? Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What is the most glorious about heaven, and what we should expect at the resurrection is that the Son of God will be there shining bright in all His glory. And He will be our shepherd. And He will give us from the springs of living water forevermore. And we will be perfectly happy. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone. Sorrow for God. Love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. All safe and blessed, we shall meet at last.
Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us as your people to live more in the light of the world to come. To be Christians whose lives and hearts and days are transformed by the hope of heaven. Excite all of us with this hope, we pray. Lord, so many of your people are discouraged. So many are downcast. So many are weary of waiting. Feeling under the burden of difficult circumstances, of crippling sorrows, of immense trials and burdens. Lord, in pity and compassion, would you please Lift their eyes to see what is to come. Give them a view of what is over the ridge, what awaits us on the other side. Give us the conviction of these things, the assurance of these things. Is this not what faith is for? We pray, Father, that there would color and characterize this church such a certain heaven and such a hope for the life to come that many would be prompted to wonder and to long for such a hope and to find such a hope. Lord, it's a dreadful thing to consider what unbelievers can expect at the resurrection. Oh, but Lord, there's free promise and life and blessing held out for them if they would believe. Oh, then this hope could be theirs also. That you would enlarge the ring of those who come within this hope. That we would be joined by a mighty company beyond those any man can number of the redeemed to worship Christ forever. Oh, Lord, even now we pray, come quickly. In the supper that we will partake together in a few moments. We do pray that we would see something of what is to be ours one day when we will partake of this feast new with you in your Father's kingdom. May you work on us a longing for that day and a hope for that day. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.